Amen. Good morning. All right. Let's get to it. Genesis chapter 30 is where we are this morning. We are going to cover the longest passage of Scripture that I think we in the 10-year history of Crosspoint have ever dealt with on one particular Sunday morning, except for that time when we went through the whole Old Testament in one Sunday. <laughs> so today we're going to be looking at both Genesis chapter 30 and 31. Now listen, uh, you're going to have to buckle up your seatbelts because we are going to clip along at a high speed. And the reason why we are combining these two chapters is we think really the theme it really kind of carries over. So it's sort of one thing that I want us to see. And we're going to see a dysfunctional family working out their dysfunction. We're going to see strife between sisters and strife between in-laws. And, and behind it all, we're going to see the faithfulness of God that is superintending His glory and His good and His purposes despite the unfaithfulness and dysfunction of this chosen family. So if you have a Bible, open it to Genesis 30. If you don't have a Bible, as always, we want you to use one of the ones in the rack in front of you, in the chair in front of you. You can keep that Bible as your own if you don't own one. And on that Bible, Genesis is kind of easy to find. It's the first book in the Bible. But if you're not real familiar with looking up uh, passages in the Bible, you can find Genesis 30 in the Bible in, in the rack in front of you on either page 24 or 19, depending on which uh, copy of the of the Bible you have. Okay, now let me give you, if you're, especially if you're newer, or maybe this is your first Sunday, you're jumping in in the middle of a, a several month-long journey that we're taking through the book of Genesis. And you're going to be jumping into like a, you know, in the merry-go-round when you were a kid on the playground and it was going and, and you'd jump on it and try and get on it. Well, I'm going to give you a couple handles to hold on to as you jump on this merry-go-round just to catch you up as to where we are in the storyline of Genesis. So very simply, God creates everything good, very good. He creates mankind in His image to be His image bearers and stewards of His, his creation. But we all, Adam and Eve and everybody since then, we've all willfully rebelled against God and fallen. And our willful rebellion against God brings with it God's right and just judgment. And so God com condemns Adam and Eve, and he expels them from the garden. But as, even as he's punishing them and separating them from his presence, he is promising them hope. In Genesis chapter 3, he says that he will bring a seed through the woman, and this seed will come and finally and fully crush the deceiver, the serpent, who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. And so the rest of Genesis is this, is this journey of God's people and hope for this seed that will come. And God, around Genesis 11 and 12, calls one particular man, Abraham. And he says to this man, Abraham, through you, Abraham, I am going to create a family, a people, a nation. And through you, I am going to bless all the peoples of the earth. I'm going to give you offspring, I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you blessing. And through you, I will bless all the peoples of the earth, and I will bring a chosen one through you. And so we see this idea of this chosen one that's going to come through Abraham, this seed of Abraham. And in one sense, it's sort of temporarily fulfilled through Genesis and through the Old Testament as the sons of Abraham. But even they don't completely accomplish the mission, so to speak. They are broken people. And we're ultimately, as we're reading this story, we're sort of pointed 
outside of this family to the one that is coming. So eventually this seed will be as we know. We now have the benefit of perspective. We know that this seed that will come, this full and final redeemer is not just Uh, is not just a man in Genesis, but he's the man, Jesus, that will come in centuries to come yet. But now we find ourselves, as we're looking at Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham, who is a deceitful man, who who deceived his uh, father, Isaac, uh, who was Abraham's son. He deceived him and tricked his twin brother so that he could get the blessing. And he didn't really need to because God had even chosen him when he was still in the womb. And he tricked his father and brother. And now, because of his deceit, he has to run away. He's running from his brother. And he finds a wife. In fact, two wives, as Wayne led us through Genesis chapter 29 last a week, and now we're in Genesis 30, where Jacob, the deceiver, who deceived his brother and his father, last week we learned that he was deceived by his father-in-law slash uncle Laban, and he now has these two wives. And so we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 30, speaking about the life of Jacob, this deceiver who was deceived. And we're going to read about strife in this family. So here's our outline. I'm just going to give you three points. I'm just going to break down these two chapters in three points. So give us some handlebars to jump to hold on to as we get on this, this track. So first we're going to look at strife between Rachel and Leah. It will see in Genesis 30. Then we're going to look at strife between Jacob and Laban. And then finally we're going to look at a peace treaty between Jacob and Laban in chapter 31. So let me pray, and then let's, let's start reading. Oh, Father, as we come to your word, we, we know that it is your holy, inspired, and completely true word. And we need your help to understand it. And there is a large chunk of scripture here for us to think about and digest this morning. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see, and ears to hear, and hearts to believe, and to see and savor Jesus. For the Christians in this room, I pray that you would warm our hearts, convict us, draw us even closer to you, and conform us more into the image of Christ. And for people that are in this room that are not yet trusting in Jesus, I pray by your kind and sovereign grace that you would do what they cannot do, that you would give them life, that you would give them a heart to believe, and turn from sin, turn from despair, turn from self their own self-righteousness, which is as filthy rags, and turn in faith to Jesus, who alone can make us right with you. Pray that you do all these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's read. I've got to get to the right page here. All right, Genesis 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. So remember, we left off in Genesis 29 where Wayne walked us through how Leah, this less desirable sister, was actually favored by God and ended up having several children uh, as opposed to her sister, Rachel, who is the one that Jacob really wanted, didn't have any children. So Rachel at this point is now envious. She envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. If you remember a few months ago, we talked about how Isaac, Jacob's dad, was a much better example of how to lead his wife. When Rebekah was barren, 
Isaac prayed for her, and she ended up becoming pregnant with twins. In this case, Jacob's mad at Rachel. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So this sounds very strange to us. Um, I doubt this has ever happened to any of you in your marriages. But this was, this was just a custom of the times. When uh, a woman w- was not able to bear children, she would have, especially if they were a very uh, wealthy family like they were, and she had uh, maidservants, it would be very customary for her to give one of her maidservants to her husband to be his wife. And then any children that would come through that mistress or maidservant would be counted as the, the child of, of the wife. Now, that seems very strange to us, but this was just the custom of the time. And, and, and something that, uh, that we'll notice here in Genesis 30 and 31, really all throughout Genesis, is just this idea of these multiple wives, these polygamy. And sometimes people have wondered, why doesn't God more definitively condemn polygamy at this junction of human history, we see him do it later on in the law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, but we don't see it do, it do it here. And some people have wondered, is that God sort of condoning it? Well, no, I think what's happening, we'll see that for all of these polygamists, things do not go well. <laughs> Understatement of all understatements. And so it's almost as if the Holy Spirit in writing Genesis is just sort of leaving this backdrop. It's just the consequences of human sin and rebellion that just doesn't go well and really primes the pump for the law that will come through Moses, pointing people back to what God's intended design was for man and women, that one man and one woman should be together in one flesh union before God. So, yeah, this is... uh, sad to see this, this progression of, of polygamy here. But then he said, verse 3, here's my, she, she said, here's my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even may I, I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Verse 7, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, listen to this, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Just, just, it gives us a glimpse into Rachel's heart. So her mistress has had two sons that are hers by custom. And it's like a competition with her sister that she's jealous with. You know, hashtag, I win. <laughs> or whatever. The, I'm not a hashtag kind of guy. I think I messed it up. <laughs> I have wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Verse 9. When Leah, now remember Leah has already had several children At the end of chapter 29, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. So Jacob has four wives now. And Leah is in this sort of, you know, competition with her sister. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. 
Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. And all these names of these sons are, are, are really um, speaking about the description of, 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 of how they feel at that moment. So Asher meaning happy. Verse 14, in the days of the wheat harvest, so, so before we start reading, we see these wives, these sister wives in this, this competition with one another to validate themselves and to win the favor of their husband through childbearing. So verse 14, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben, remember he was the first son of Leah from the end of chapter 29, went and found mandrakes in the field. Now, mandrakes was a certain plant that had a root, and there was this superstition that this mandrake, which the words literally mean love plant or love fruit, that this mandrake had a certain sort of uh, mojo in it that would increase fertility. That's not true, but that was just a superstition of the time. And what it was, was just kind of this plant flower, and underneath the root, I think maybe why they believed this, is that the root had kind of a curve to it, almost like a a woman's, like, well, you know what I'm saying, okay? And so I guess there was this sense that this was kind of like an aphrodisiac love potion number nine fertility enhancer, this root that grew underneath the ground. And that was the superstition of the day. So um, Reuben is out picking these mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And it's not just because she wanted to make mandrake stew. She wanted those mandrakes because she you know, superstitiously believed that it would enhance her fertility, right? And so Leah says, no. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of these mandrakes. Leah says, no, you've taken away my husband. Now you want me to give you this love potion number nine? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So they're bartering here. If you give me some of these, you know, uh, fertility enhancers, I'll let you have him tonight. I mean, friends, this is, it's, this is in the Bible, right? Then he may lie with you tonight, exchange for your son's mandrakes. Verse 16. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come unto me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. I don't, I don't really have much to say about that other than... So he lay with her that night. Verse 17, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. So Rachel's plan kind of backfired on her. She wants the fertility plant, and in exchange for getting that, she gives Jacob over to her sister for one night, and she ends up getting pregnant. Verse 18, Leah said, God has given me, listen to this, listen to her mindset. Remember, Rachel said, I've prevailed against my sister. Now listen to Leah in verse 18 when she gets pregnant again. Leah said, God has given me wages because I gave my servant to my husband. God has given me my wages. 
God owed this to me. God has given this to me because I paid him off here. So she called his name Issachar. Verse 19. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now listen to this sad sentence. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. Oh, the despair that we see that Wayne drawed out so wonderfully last week about Leah. Now my husband will honor me because I've given him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. Afterwards, she bore him a daughter and called her name Dinah. We'll read about Dinah in a couple chapters in 34, chapter 34, a horrible story about what happens to Dinah. And then verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. Yes, that's the Joseph that will be so important in the rest of the story, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Okay, wow. Strife between Rachel and Leah. What do we learn? Two things that we learn before we continue on in the story as we read about this really uh, just pathetic competition between these two sisters. First, we learn that striving for the things of this world never ultimately satisfies. Really, this is a pickup of Wayne's point that I thought was made so well last week where he spoke about how all of life is marked by disappointment to some degree and and read those really insightful quotes from C.S. Lewis. This is just a continuation of that same truth. Striving for the things of this world never ultimately satisfies. Leah is longing for the love of her husband. Rachel is longing for the validation that she feels will only come through childbearing. Both of them are stuck in this horizontal cycle of seeking validation and worth by either a man or a baby or some sort of horizontal, human-centered source. And ultimately, it will never satisfy. Here's an application question for us. Ask yourself, fill in this blank. If I could just have blank, then my life would be fulfilled or happy. If this person, blank, whoever they are, would just give me the love, the credit, the recognition that I deserve, then I would be fulfilled or satisfied or happy. Whatever or whoever we put in those blanks is ultimately something that can never truly satisfy and is really an idol of our heart. We're putting it on a throne that only God rightfully occupies. Striving for the things of this world never ultimately satisfies. Then secondly, I think we learn from this strife between Rachel and Leah is that God's choice to bless is not based on human standards. In fact, I think that's one of the themes that we see all throughout the Bible, but in particular, all throughout Genesis. I mean, God chooses Abram, this man who's wandering in the desert, worshiping false gods, not because he was better than anybody else, because God decided to put his love on him. God chose Jacob in the womb with his brother Esau. He put his affection on Jacob and not Esau, not because Jacob had done anything good or bad, but because God set his love on Jacob through whom he would build a people. God's choice to bless is not based on human standards. 
or scheming. Rachel thinks that she can engineer God's blessing by using these, these mandrakes as a, as a sort of fertility booster. Leah thinks that she can deserve or earn God's blessing because she gave Jacob to Leah and has put up with the lovelessness of her husband. One sister thinks that she can manipulate God's blessing. The other thinks that God owes her his blessing. But friends, that's not the way God works. God is not obligated. And God is not reacting to our scheming or our standards. And that, friends, is good news. Because when is enough scheming? When is enough goodness good enough to merit God's favor. When is that line crossed? Well, the reality is we can never cross it. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, picking up on this great truth about how God pours out His grace, not because of anything in us, but solely because of His grace. Paul writes this, and this is how God makes anybody a Christian, not because of anything good in them, but because of His grace. Verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. By calling there, he means that he called you from death to life in Christ. He opened your eyes so that you could see Jesus. It doesn't just mean like your calling of what you should do in your life or your vocation. For consider your calling, or maybe more poignantly, for consider your salvation, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friends, that verse is telling us this scene of God giving his blessing to a dysfunctional family despite their scheming, despite them feeling that God owes them something, shows us that God loves his people despite their unworthiness, not because of their worthiness. And that, friends, is gospel truth. A couple implications for us if we're in Christ, if we're trusting in him. We, We are free to be loved just as we are. He didn't choose you because you could bench 300 or run a 440, 440-yard dash. He didn't choose you because you were super sharp and could figure things out. He didn't choose you because you were pretty or smart or talented. He didn't choose you because of that. He chose you because he loves you. He loves you, friends, because he loves you. And so if you even know who Jesus is, it's because he set your, his love on you before the foundations of the earth, the Bible says in Ephesians 1. And he loves you because he loves you. And if he loves you because he loves you, he's not going to stop loving you for anything in you. And that should free us from conditional love, shouldn't it? Here's a question from my soul, though in your soul. Is, is being known and loved by God in this way unconditionally really my heart's desire? Or is being loved and known and acknowledged by the world around me often my deepest desire? We see these two sisters caught up in this this horizontal validation. And this becomes a picture for us to lift our eyes. This passage demonstrates the futility of striving 
for earthly vindication from people and points us to look upward to the grace of God that cannot be earned. Okay, verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Let me just summarize that for you. Will Hawk is very disappointed that I'm not going to read this passage for you. I'm just going to summarize it because it tells a really quirky story about some strange mating techniques that Jacob used for the sheep, for the flocks. So what happens is Jacob wants to leave his father-in-law slash Uncle Laban. He's tired of being used by him, being manipulated by him. And he says, I've had enough. I want to take my wives, my children, and this flock that I have done a really good job shepherding. I want to take a portion of it, and I want to leave you, Laban, and kind of establish my own little, you know, estate. And Laban doesn't want that because he knows that Jacob has really done well in shepherding his flocks. Jacob has made him rich. And so Jacob comes up with a plan to sort of hope to uh, influence or encourage Laban to let him go. And he says, okay, Laban, I will take all of the, the, the goats that are speckled and striped and spotted and the black lambs, which is the, the minority of the number. I'll take those, just those, and, and all the others are yours. And so let me just take these speckled, spotted, or striped uh, goats and the black lambs and take them, and then the rest is yours. And Laban goes, no, 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 I don't want you to go, I don't want you to go. And so what he does is he actually agrees to that plan, but then, I guess when Jacob was asleep, he has his sons take all of those speckled, spotted, and black sheep and removes them and sends them like three days away. So Jacob gets up in the morning like, oh, all the ones that I thought were going to be mine aren't there anymore. So Laban is still deceiving Jacob. So Jacob says, okay, aha, well, I got a plan. So Jacob takes these sticks, like pieces of wood, and peels them so that the piece of wood is striped, like peels it so there's white streaks, you know, the bark, and then white streaks in these sticks. And he sets the streaks, streaked wood, before the herd while they're breeding. And the superstition was that during the act of breeding, if the animal saw a vivid sight, like a colorful stick, that it would impress on the, you know, the, the little baby being formed in the mother. And it would cause the, the little baby goat in the mommy's tummy to be striped just like the thing that the mother is looking at while she is conceiving the child. That's not true. <laughs> but it was what Jacob thought. It was his plan. It was superstition, just like the mandrakes. And guess what? It works. <laughs> it, no, it works. And... Jacob prospers, even though Laban stole off the existing spotted ones and speckled ones and striped ones. Jacob's crazy plan works. We'll find out why in a second. And in fact, Jacob is scheming his father-in-law, and he's actually sort of siphoning off the strong females and letting them be the ones that look at the sticks while they're conceiving so that he gets the strongest spotted and speckled and colored lambs, right? So now at the end of Genesis 30, Jacob is prospering despite Laban trying to trick him again with some strange, superstitious voodoo stick type thing. And now we get to chapter 31, and we read about the strife between Jacob and Laban. Verse 31, then now Jacob heard 
that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. So the brothers are seeing that Jacob's, you know, magic sticks are working, and Jacob is, you know, getting all of, he's actually getting more because more spotted and speckled uh, goats and lambs were being born through Jacob's sort of crazy system. Verse 2, and Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return, now this is the Lord speaking to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. Verse 4, so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. So Jacob realizes that it really wasn't his goofy little stick system, but that behind it all was God manipulating the breeding process of these sheep and goats for the blessing of Jacob. Verse 10. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock that were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that, is, that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise. Go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So God, through this dream, through this angel, is showing to him, again, it wasn't your little stick system. It was me making this happen to increase your flock. And it is God now calling Jacob back to the land that he had called him to begin from the beginning. Remember, he called Abraham, his grandfather, and said, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you children, offspring, and I'm going to bless you. He said the same to Isaac, his son. Jacob's father, and he repeated it to Jacob. So God, through this whole strange relationship here, is bringing Jacob back to where he had originally intended him to be. Verse 14, then Rachel and Leah answered him and said, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our fathers belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Rachel and Leah were getting mad at their father Laban as well, and their hearts were ready to leave as well. And so when Jacob complains to them about their father and his treatment of them, Rachel and Leah have no problem joining in with Jacob because they're like, yeah, our father's been terrible to us as well. Verse 17, listen to this. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possessions that he had acquired in Padamaram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Verse 19, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. 
And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So Rachel, before they're about to get out of town and go back to the promised land, Rachel's sneaking some of her father Laban's household gods, whatever they are, just these little statues and relics that show us that Laban wasn't worshiping the true God, but he had all these little figures and, you know, idols that Rachel kind of puts in her satchel just in case. Verse 22, when it was told Laban, when it was, uh, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, this is God speaking to wicked father-in-law slash uncle Laban, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, don't hurt him. Verse 25, and Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. Let's stop there. Time out, Laban. Time out. You've treated him horribly up to this point, are we really supposed to believe you that, man, why did you leave without saying goodbye? I just wanted to give you a kiss. <laughs> no, no, Laban, no. Verse 29, he says, continuing his little speech to Jacob, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for, the, for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob knows nothing about that, right? Rachel's the one that snuck them in her little satchel bag before they got out of Dodge. Verse 31, Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Now he's going to address the idols. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Rach, 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 Rach. <laughs> You're making it hard on your boy Jacob here, Rachel. Verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. So if you've ever been in the army, this is like the drill sergeant just dumping your rock, right? Like he smells like a chocolate bar. Like maybe you like your girlfriend sent you a chocolate bar during basic training and, you know, the drill sergeant can smell it. Everybody line up in formation and dump your rucks. This is what's going on right here. So Laban went in searching the tents and he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Verse 34. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. Verse 35, And she said to her father, Let not my Lord, meaning her dad, be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. Meaning either that she was 
on her menstrual cycle or that she was pregnant, probably the, the first one that she was on her menstrual cycle, whether she really was or not. I think she's just using that to keep Laban from making her get up because she's sitting on the bag of idols. So it worked. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin? For you have hotly pursued me. For you have felt through all of my goods. What have you found all of your, what have you found all of your household goods? See, set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. And I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by the wild beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand, you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day, the heat consumed me, and by and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I have served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you have not changed my wages 10 times. I mean, Jacob is unloading on his father-in-law slash uncle. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, that's just a a Hebrew God-honoring way of saying God, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So, what do we learn about the strife between Jacob and Laban? Very quickly, let's move fast. What do we learn? We learn that God uses hardship to bring about his will for his people. Jacob was called by God, just like his grandfather Isaac, just like his father, just like his grandfather Abraham, just like his father Isaac. He was called as well to this land to be a blessing, to have these offspring, and through him he would bless all the peoples of the earth. But he got comfortable in this other land. He got comfortable in this blessing that he had with his father-in-law Laban. And he needed the hardship of the dispute brought about by the increase of this flock and the rumblings of his brother-in-laws to pry his hands from the comfortable place that he was in that wasn't God's place for him. And God See this, behind the curtain, God is working, in fact, bringing hardship and discomfort when Jacob was comfortable to push him away from it so that he would go back to the place that God had intended him to be. It reminds me of that quote, one of my favorite ones, don't have it on the screen, but Spurgeon says something in one of his sermons where he says that Jesus often rides to the doorsteps of our hearts on the black horse of affliction and uses both joy and sorrow to wean our hearts from the things of this earth and woo us to heaven. God uses hardship to bring about his will for his people. So here's a question before we move on to the next point. What difficult or challenging relationship or situation are you in right now? And do you see that God may be working in it to pry your hands from some 
comfortable place that God does not intend you to be in? And have you considered that God may be behind this in some way for your good and His purposes? And friends, who among us can have this type of perspective on their own life? That's why we need each other. That's why God gives us the local church. That's why God gives us community. That's why God gives us community groups and friends and people that we know and are known by to help us have this perspective so that we rightly interpret the stress and the strife and the hardship in our life And we can see with the help of trusted brothers and sisters in Christ that God's hand, how it may be working in all of these things. And even when we all can't see it, we can at least bear with one another and hold one another up. And we need the help to lift our eyes to see that God somehow will work all things together for our good. Friends, that's why you need to be known. That's why you need to be known in this church. If you're just on the outskirts and nobody knows your name and you've been coming for six months and you you shoot in late and you scoot out early and nobody knows you, friends, you you are injuring your soul nobody can have the right perspective on their life. That's why we need each other. So God uses hardship to bring about his will for his people. Secondly, we learn from the strife between Jacob and Laban is that idols make bad backup plans. I mean, what was Rachel's motivation in stealing away these little figurines, these little bobbleheads of whatever these false gods were? Maybe it was economic. Maybe they were worth some sort of value. And she realized that Laban, her father, squandered all of her inheritance. And she wasn't real sure whether or not Jacob was going to treat her well in the future when she went to his homeland. And so she's sneaking away. You know, she raided the jewelry cabinet just in case she needs to hawk a few things at the Canaanite pawn shop. Maybe that was it. Or maybe... She was still kind of worshiping these false gods. Which if that's the case, after over a decade of marriage to Jacob, and he has not led her spiritually to worship the one true God, boy, there's a whole sermon we could settle down on there about Jacob not leading his wife spiritually. Men, we need to lead our wives spiritually. No, I doubt any of our wives are stealing statues of Buddha and hiding them in a camel bag and sitting on them. But our wives and We ourselves, like every human being, is susceptible to idols, is susceptible to putting our hope in maybe some strange superstition or some cultural ideal or whatever it is. And these idols, these things that we sort of hedge our bets on and say, oh, if I go all in with God, then if it doesn't work out, I need a little fallback plan here. Whatever that is, it makes a terrible backup plan. It doesn't work. It is a lack of faith for us to think that we need God plus a little something to make it through life. Idols, false assurances, whatever it is, horizontal validation from people around us make horrible backup plans. And thirdly, and this may be the the point of these whole two chapters, is that God intervenes to protect his people. God intervenes to protect his people. Laban, his father-in-law, was in hot pursuit of Jacob, and he was angry. 
And the text clearly says that he could have overtaken him and harmed him, killed him. But God woke him up in the dream, tapped him on the shoulder and says, Hey, Laban, don't touch him, fool. I will make it go badly for you. And God stops Laban from hurting his chosen one, Jacob. Friends, this scene teaches us that God can and does intervene for his people. Here's a question for you. What about when God doesn't seem to intervene for his people? It's one thing for us to read this chapter and say, okay, God intervened for Jacob. It's another thing for us to say, okay, God can intervene for me. But what about when he doesn't seem to intervene in the here and now? Because you see, this passage, this truth, if it's true, has to apply to all of God's people. It has to apply not just to Jacob, not just to comfortable Americans in 2015, but it has to apply also to 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians who had their heads severed from their bodies by these horrible, wicked, evil, demonic men. And so we may be left to wonder, well, why was God powerless in that situation? And friends, the answer to that is no. Listen to what Paul says in in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 35, friends. Get this truth. Stare at this. Listen to this. In a world that is treacherous and uncertain, we need to know this and be comforted by this. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Paul writes this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, and he's quoting Psalm 44 here, Paul is, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that verse is telling me that when God deems it so according to his will to intervene and prolong my life, then he will do it. And when God deems it so for my life to end, whether it be by old age and breath that departs from my lungs or the sword of a terrorist, so be it. My days are numbered by God. Every one of our days are numbered by God. And when God decides that they are done, they are done. And it is not depending on the the broken sinful will of a terrorist or a father-in-law. God intervenes or doesn't intervene according to his will for his glory and the good of every one of his children. And even the most horrific of deaths, friends, even the most horrific of death merely serves God's purposes to bring that one home where to be with Christ is better by far. And friends, that gives me great confidence because it tells us as Christians, what can this world do to me? Right? 
the happy ending of these 80 or 90 years is not the goal. Psalm 139 says that every one of my days are numbered. I'm going to live until God says you die and then I'm with Jesus. So what can this world do to me? If the enemy is chasing me, God may decide to prolong my life because I have more usefulness from here and he will wake some knucklehead up in a dream and say, leave him alone. Or if God decides it is my time to die for his glory and show the world that Jesus is better than another four decades, then so be it. Do you see, friends, when we grab a hold of this, this fuels zeal to live for God in a dangerous world. God intervenes to protect his people. And we end with this, a peace treaty, and we'll be done quickly. Verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it, let me give it my best shot, Jeger Sahudutha. But Jacob called it Gilead. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Gilead and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord Watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take your wives beside my daughters, if you take wives beside my daughters, although no, no one is with us to see, God is witness between you and me. So there's a, it's a treaty that they're striking here, but it's an uneasy treaty. We see that they don't really trust each other still. Verse 51, Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap in the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, now this is Laban speaking, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, who's a false god, the God of their father, judge between us. So he's just kind of, any gods out there, we're just going to call on them to do this here. But Jacob, it says, so Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. We see Jacob's faith increasing and, and growing and fear of the one true God. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread, and they spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed him. Then Laban departed and returned home. And so there's this peace treaty. It's an uneasy one, though. So what can we learn, finally, and we end on this, about this peace treaty? Friends, This uneasy peace treaty shows us that really it's only God that can bring true reconciliation and peace. It's only God that can do that. This this sort of half, you know, uh, hearted treaty that they have where Laban is praying to all these false gods, Jacob is praying to the one true God. It's it's not it's not a, a true lasting treaty. They still don't seem to trust each other. And all of this, this strife between the sisters, this strife between Laban and Jacob points us to the need that we all have for real reconciliation, for 
real peace. Since Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered humanity and caused everything to be fractured and everything to be broken and everything to spiral downward, we have needed reconciliation with each other and more primarily with God that never can finally come from us. Every bit of peace that we may strike with one another is uneasy and incomplete. But the good news of the gospel, and that's where this chapter lifts us up. It points us, even as we look at the futility of all the human relationships in 30 and 31, it points us up, up to God who promises the seed that will come, Jesus, who will fully and finally bring peace. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. And then 6 through 10, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and that faith is in what Jesus has done on the cross, through his perfect sacrificial death to bear God's wrath for us, he rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Skipping down to verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So friends, as we read Genesis 30 and 31, and we read about this dysfunctional family, it's not, it doesn't just exist, this story, to be a kind of moral tale about how we should treat one another better. The point of the story is not... Boys and girls, if you would just not be like girls, don't be like Rachel and Leah. And boys, don't be like Jacob and Laban. They were really bad. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is these cats are jacked up. And they have no hope within themselves. And stories like this, that are true records of God's dealing with his people, are meant to lift our eyes to the one that will come, the one that will strike a peace treaty with us that will be permanent and real. And he does that by not just heaping up stones and cutting open a goat, by laying down his own body and letting it be cut on a cross to be sacrificed, to bear the wrath that should have been ours, and then rise again in victory, and now commanding all people everywhere, every broken person, every jealous sister, every dysfunctional wife, every jacked up husband, every scheming father-in-law, every person in this room is, is called by God to look up away from ourselves and trust in the only one who can truly bring peace, which is Jesus on the cross. And that's what this dysfunctional family points us to, a faithful God who makes peace with us through Jesus. But friends, he only makes it with us if we will turn from ourselves and trust in him. 
This isn't a universal sort of kumbaya. Everybody just kind of, whatever. Boy, wasn't that Old Testament harsh? Now I'm going to hug everybody. This only applies for those that will turn away from trusting in themselves and put their hope and faith in what God has done in Christ on the cross to bear their punishment and remove it and give them life so that they can now live for his glory. Friends, you must do that. Every one of us. Even now. Look to Christ. Put your hope in him. Cry out to him. And be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for the... Uh, just the generosity of, of my brothers and sisters here as we work through this long text. Would you come now by your Holy Spirit? Anything that I've said that <clears throat> has been unhelpful or untrue, I pray that it would fall to the ground. Any of your truth that you have used me to communicate, Lord, I pray that it would stick fast to our hearts. Encourage Christians to run to you, to know that you alone are sovereign over our days, that you help your people, that nothing can stop your hand. And for unbelievers in this room, Lord, would you cause them to look above the dysfunction and the strife of this world, which can never be solved by man, and to look up and see Jesus. And Lord, would you strike a peace treaty with them and open their eyes to see Jesus and cause them to turn away from themselves, turn away from sin and self-righteousness and put their hope in the risen King, Jesus. And would you do this all for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.